0: Tonight, we are continuing in the book of Acts. Moving on. Uh, last week, John spent some time in Corinthians and uh, sort of talking about some of the different principles, different doctrines that, that, that pop up in some of the main themes of those, or at least that letter, 1 Corinthians. I spent a ton of time in 2 Corinthians. Um, But we're going to continue to move forward here in the book of Acts. And this is going to be a a little bit of a a different sort of passage here. So what we're going to find here, we're going to be going through chapter 18, verses 18, through chapter 19, verse 7. We'll read it here in just a second. But what we're going to look at is an expression of discipleship in in a few different ways. So there's gonna be three different sort of stories, three different narratives. It's one of the things I love about Acts is teaches us so many different things through the lives of people, through the interaction of people, uh, teaches us through narrative. I think it's one of the best ways for us to learn because we can remember a story much more than we can remember a list, right? And so we get to learn about it in the context of this interaction. Um, Paul's life, him living his life, and uh, we're going to look at some other people also uh, in this portion of Scripture. So, if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he had uh, cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went on into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return. Uh, return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending time, uh, some time there, he departed and went out from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and, being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately, And when he wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country And came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul had laid his hands on them, I'm sorry, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came, uh, came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This is God's word. You may be seated. So tonight we are looking at these three texts. You can kind of see probably in your, in your Bible there, that it does outline this into three nice little bite-sized nuggets, a three-course meal that we'll go through tonight, three different little stories that all surround this concept, this idea of discipleship. Now, when we are talking about this topic of discipleship, and the the title for for the sermon is The Necessities of Discipleship, the greatest discipler was Jesus. He really gave us the greatest example of a master interacting with his disciples. And honestly, that's one of the major themes of the New Testament is not only Christ and his mission, but the inclusion of these others that he would then entrust with the gospel to go forward from there. So uh, rather than go through all four gospels, we will just suffice to say that Jesus is the greatest example of discipleship. And what we will do is see how Paul lives that out and how that is passed on to others. So that's, that's what we're going to be looking at uh, tonight. So look at, with me at verse 18. So verses 18 through 23, we get Paul ending his second missionary journey and actually beginning his third. So... No rest for Paul, he moves on. But we're actually covering quite a bit of time here. That's what is sort of interesting about this passage that we're looking at. Luke is the one recording all of this, and it would seem as though he himself is summarizing what's been going on for for quite a a time here. Maybe uh, months, years maybe, um, especially if you include the passage right before. It says that, yeah, Paul's just spent a year and a half in Corinth, right? 18 months. And so we're, we're definitely generalizing this time that we have here. Um, but anyway, going, going back to this passage here, it says that Paul stayed with them many days longer, and it says then he took leave. So again, this is Luke probably just relaying what he's been told by Paul, by some of the other men uh, that he was traveling with. It says that Paul stayed for many days longer, and he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So, we'll pause there for a second. What about everybody else? He's traveling with Silas, and he's got Timothy and Luke. Apparently Luke's not with him either. Um, What are they doing? Why doesn't he travel with them? I don't know. But what we can see is, as we've been traveling through these chapters here, you see that Paul has this cycle of moving on and leaving people to continue a work, and then they'll catch up with him, right? And then he'll move on to somewhere else, and so there's, there's this sort of overlapping of ministry going on. But one of the things we can gather from this, and especially the interaction that Paul has with some of these others that he's traveling with and he leaves them places, and he, is that he is entrusting ministry to them. Paul doesn't have to be involved in every little tiny thing. He trusts these ones that he's been with and traveling with to carry on and to do what he has been doing. And so he entrusts, in a sense, he entrusts ministry to them, if that makes sense. He trusts to leave them to continue to do that. And we can see that in some of the letters that Paul writes, he writes to Timothy, he writes to Titus, and in some of the other books he, he writes, I'm sending you so-and-so, please welcome them and they're going to instruct you. So Paul not only takes his responsibility as an apostle seriously, but he takes his responsibility as a teacher seriously, because a teacher who doesn't ever think that a student will be learned enough to move on and to carry on without them, is not a teacher. It's something else. And we'll talk about that in a little bit here. But Paul left with Priscilla and Aquila. Why with Priscilla and Aquila? I don't know. I don't know why they came along. But it appears that after meeting them, staying with them, they were not just acquaintances. They became uh, trusted friends. And Paul takes them with him. They They go to this place... Centuria, in Centuria, it says that Paul cut his hair. Why do we care? Um, it says that he cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now, what this most likely is, is Paul took upon himself a Nazarite vow. Now, Nazarite vow is uh, one we should be familiar with, but normally I I don't think we think about other people taking a Nazarite vow because we almost always talk about a Nazarite vow in the context of very specific individuals. In fact, usually people connect it with one individual. Who is it that we normally connect with a Nazarite vow? Samson. It's like, oh, you don't cut your hair. You don't cut your hair at all. Well, Samson's not really the best example of a Nazarite vow because He was supposed to be a Nazarite from birth his entire life. That's not normally how this happened. In Numbers chapter 6, it talks about some of the details with the Nazarite vow. The point of that was to have this special time where you would um, not cut your hair, so there was an outward symbol. You wouldn't touch anything unclean, so there was a a holiness or a purity uh, to that as well. And then you also would not uh, eat or drink anything from the vine, I think that includes raisins, but you wouldn't have anything from the vine, and one of the reasons for that would be sort of a, a, a different rule on a fast. It was something that you really had to take care of. You had to think about. You had to not only wine, but all of the other things that went along with it. Um, it would have made you stand out. You had to abstain. It was you taking the stand for something that was very common, very used. I don't know about the raisins thing, but but definitely wine, grape juice, that type of thing, you abstained from that. And so you would stand out. Why did Paul do it? It doesn't even give us a reason, but you would engage with the Nazarite vow in Jerusalem. You had to go to the temple to do it. So this is partly, probably, why Paul's like I got to get to Jerusalem. Also, once you cut your hair, so he does this in, Centrea, He only has about thirty days to take that hair and to present it into the temple. So, that's partly why it seems like Paul's in a hurry. It's like I got I got to fulfill this thing. I got to go do this. Uh, why we don't know, <clears throat> but it does kind of let us in into this idea that even though Paul is an apostle, even though Paul is, we would say he is a Christian. And uh, all the things that go along with that, he still takes upon himself some of these things that were pretty traditionally Jewish. Why? Because he, it's still valid. It's still a valid thing. Just because he's not necessarily practicing in the same way that he was before, he still practices in these, in these different ways. Quite possibly, it allowed him a standing when he went to the synagogues that maybe someone else wouldn't have. It was very clear he's taking a Nazarite vow because he's got really long hair. I don't know. We don't know exactly why. Anything that we say is really conjecture. And honestly, we don't even really know that it was truly a Nazarite vow. It's just assumed because of the hair thing. Anyway, that's a whole lot of time spent on a haircut. But anyway, that's pretty much it. That's all it's mentioned about. Nothing else is really said. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus... And he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. We don't know all the details around this. Came to Ephesus, but then he left them. That's Priscilla and Aquila. So where, what synagogue did he go to? We don't have a ton of details on it. This is all we got. This is right here. It says he went and he reasoned with the Jews. Uh, So he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. He goes and he reasons with the Jews. This is also that same word for like, argued with, he debated with, he, you know, tangled verbally with them. But he, uh, so he went to the synagogues, that's pretty normal, right? He went to reason with the Jews. In verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. That sounds weird. Why would the Jews ask him to stay? It's not the Jews, it's Priscilla and Aquila. So Priscilla and Aquila asked him to stay. Stay in Ephesus with us. And he said, no, i got to go. And I think part of that may have been, i got to fulfill this vow. i got to get back to Jerusalem. That's part of it. But also, he's trying to get back for a feast. Is he trying to get back for a feast for family reasons? Maybe. Maybe he just really wants to get back to Jerusalem. He's been gone a long time. Uh, so anyway, he says, I'm not going to stay. You guys stay. I'm out. i got to go. And so he leaves them there, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Paul apparently had no problem traveling by himself. Uh, maybe not as fun. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he really enjoyed it. But he uh, ended up traveling back to, uh, to Jerusalem, as we see here. But in verse 21, he says, uh, if, you know, if God wills, I'll return. Right? He's not closing the doors to that. Instead, he set sail from Ephesus. Uh, and we do know. That he does travel back. Spoiler there, but it says when he landed at Caesarea, this is not Caesarea Philippi, this is a different Caesarea, this is on the coast. It says when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. So he went there, we assume he went to the temple, he did all the vow things, and then it says he went up up to Jerusalem, he went down to Antioch. Uh, this up and down, it has to do with elevation. It doesn't have to do with the map, north, south, east, west. We would say we are going up to Sacramento. Why? I don't know. Our maps show it as north, so we say up, even though it's not up. But for them, up was always to Jerusalem. And when you're in Jerusalem, you always go down to everywhere else. So directionally, maybe it doesn't work on the map. That's why it's like that. So he went to Antioch, and if we remember, that's where he spent a lot of his time. After he was saved, he spent a lot of time at Antioch. So for him, that was home base. And it says, after spending some time there, he departed. So what we have here in one, in one verse, we have the end of his second missionary journey and the beginning of his third, right there in one verse. How long is this taking? Not clear. Days, weeks, months, we don't know. Uh, travel time obviously took a lot longer, but it's also not really that important to the story as far as how long he was taking there. But the point was he went back home. What's included in there is most likely uh, reports, other things to these different churches. It says he went and he encouraged. And we see here in verse 23, it says, after spending some time there, he departed and went up from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so he was going to all these places that he was familiar with, that he had Been before, maybe checking up on them, encouraging them, all those sorts of things. We get this nice sort of bookend to the second missionary journey. Then he kind of moves on to his third. We kind of see this is this is Paul, this is what he does, right? He goes home and then he's he gets that travel itch and then he moves on. Do we have another sending out from Antioch? Does he just feel like, hey, I want to go visit my friends in these different places? It's not clear. we know that Paul's life was one of continually moving. He's on the move, and he'd stay someplace for a few years, maybe, but he was on the move. So a couple things here. He, what we see is a dedication to not only the people around him, but also faithfulness to all the different bodies, right? He could have stayed in Ephesus. He could have. Had a wonderful time there. It was in a very important city. We're going to be spending more time in Ephesus here later on in Acts, but Paul is moving on. Why is he moving on? He goes to Jerusalem, he goes back home, but then he heads back to Galatia, goes back to Phrygia, and I see that last phrase there, strengthening all the disciples. His focus was still on, I gotta, I gotta strengthen these people. I gotta go and visit them. I gotta go see how they're doing. I gotta see other churches. We, we have to keep moving. And that's what we get from Paul. So discipleship was important, but it was also a lifestyle. Discipleship was not just a meeting. It wasn't just oh, it's just something on my calendar and then it's done, this was a life that he lived, right? Going and strengthening and being with the disciples. This is actually what we see with Jesus. This is the example that Jesus laid down, lived out in the life of Paul, right? Um, We're gonna see here how, in our last section, chapter 19, how that changes even more and how that expands even more. But Paul, his life, his ministry, was to people. This is one of the things that's sort of amazing. So he has this drive to go and to be with people, to minister to people, to disciple them. This is funny because we credit Paul with being a writer. Paul writes, right? That's what he does. Two-thirds of the New Testament is Paul writing. I think if you ask Paul, hey, Paul, what is the what is the biggest aspect of your ministry to the church at large? I don't think he would say writing. I think he would say going and teaching and discipling and being with the people of God. I think that's what he would say. Because as you read through his letters, his emphasis is on, I want to come and see you, but I can't, so here's a letter. And I find that amazing because Paul would probably identify that going and being with people is the most important thing. It's the thing I want to do. It's the thing I'm called to do. When I can't do that, I guess I'll write a letter. Right? There's, if there's people asking me to come, oh, I feel bad, I'm going to write a letter. For us, that's been probably for us in the New Testament, one of the greatest ministries that Paul has to us is his writing. And I only say that because sometimes we can get frustrated and what we think God is doing in our lives in regard to ministry. What am am I supposed to be doing? Where am I supposed to be going? We might have something in our heart that this is the primary thing that God is calling us to. And then those secondary things pop up and say, okay, I'll do those things too. I'll be faithful to those things. And it might be those things that we wouldn't necessarily vocalize and say that's the most important thing that God is doing that might actually be the most impactful thing that the Lord has for you to do. All that to say, we are not the best at figuring out exactly what God is going to do with us. And I say that because in the lives of the people God brings to us, in the people who we would say we're helping to disciple, we have to be careful that we don't somehow lean into their lives to say, you need to do exactly like me. You need to do exactly what I'm doing. And I say that to move into our next section here. Verse 20, starting in verse 24 through the end of the chapter. Where we don't see Paul at all. Except that we do. And you'll see why in just a second. But look at verse 24. We know we're starting another kind of story because of how it starts. Now a Jew named Apollos, which is interesting to say to begin with. Because that is a very Greek name. Right? Very Greek name, but he's actually Jewish and actually lives in Africa, so go figure. But a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, which that's a, that's a whole story in and of itself, being from Alexandria, um, very influential place, crossroads of, of the world in Alexandria, uh, but it says that he came to Ephesus. So what's this guy from, from Alexandria down in Egypt? What what is he doing in Ephesus? We don't know. It does. It apparently doesn't really matter to the story because it doesn't say. But what it does say is a couple things about Apollos that are not mentioned about really anyone else in the New Testament. The first one is he was el- an eloquent man. He was a man of learning. He was very good. Apparently, as we've come to find out, he was an amazing orator. He could speak and and could convey thoughts and ideas in an amazing way. And the second one, competent in the scriptures. We don't get this sort of phrase really compared, uh, or we don't get it describing really many other people at all. And and we, we get the idea that people may have been competent in scriptures, but to have it called out like this is amazing. And what's amazing is this is before... He actually comes to know and to understand all of the gospel, which we'll see here. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That's a very general statement, right? The way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he he knew only the baptism of John. A few things to unpack there real quick. Since he was instructed in the way of the Lord, he himself was a recipient of good teaching. Was it his family? Was it the synagogue he was a part of? Did he get it along the way? Again, not shared with us, but he uh, was instructed in the way of the Lord. It says, and being fervent in spirit. I like this because in, in in the original Greek, it gives this idea that he was boiling. He was boiling in the spirit, which I think is a cool description, but he was fervent. So, so boiling, what does that mean to have, to be described as someone who's boiling? I don't know, but I think we can kind of think through that and say he's, he's not someone you would necessarily be able to ignore. That's what it sounds like to me. Even though they say a watch pot's never boiled, I'm not going to get into that, but, because I don't think it relates but he uh, is called this one who's fervent in the spirit and he said he taught this is what's uh, amazing to me i just spent a lot of time looking into this it says that he spoke and taught accurate the things concerning jesus or one translation says the facts of jesus it says though he only knew the baptism of john so what in the world does that mean he spoke concerning the things of jesus though he only knew the baptism of john I think this is interesting from a theological standpoint because you have this man who is, knows the way of the Lord, has been taught in the way of the Lord at least. He is fervent in the spirit. He uh, was well instructed, so he's very good at what he does, but he doesn't know all the information about Jesus. Or, or I should say he knows the information about Jesus, but it, it seems to not actually be connected into something that we would call the gospel. He, doesn't, he hasn't put those things all together yet. says he only knew the baptism of John. Side note, how impactful was John? Not only in this passage, but in the next one, we're going to see there's there's people who had been impacted by John to the point where they would say, that's the baptism that I was baptized in, that's what I follow, who are fervent in the Lord. But just from that, just from, from a man in the desert, leading by example, calling them to repentance, he said, that's the baptism that I know. That I find fascinating, that someone would be that fervent in the Lord to go. And apparently, in, in Apollos' case, to, to travel to go and to speak, because look at what he's doing. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So he who does that sound like? Apollos shows up, and where does he go? He goes to the synagogue. Who's this sound like? This sounds a lot like Paul. Here's what's funny. Is they've never met. He's, he has had no interaction with Paul, but apparently has the same idea. That leads me to believe this was a pretty sound course of action. This was a good plan. That When you go to a place, you go and, and talk to the Jews about these things. So Apollos was apparently following in the same pattern but he was led by the message of repentance by John the baptizer. So it says that he went there, and it says, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So whatever information he was missing about Jesus, they filled in. So what could that mean? So we know that John had been preaching the God, the, this message, um, message of repentance, the kingdom was at hand, but also teaching that whoever would come behind him is more powerful than him. He was teaching also the message of the Messiah. So, Apollos most likely knew Jesus was the Messiah. John had declared that. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. He had these different facts and details, but apparently didn't have the story of Jesus. Does this mean that he went and met John, but before John publicly pronounced Jesus? I don't know. We don't know all of those details. But we know that the truth of the gospel of repentance, the quick coming of the kingdom that the Messiah was coming, was enough to move Apollos to go to different synagogues to make sure that they knew this message, the message of repentance, the message that the Messiah is coming. You need to be ready. He apparently was able to argue with these leaders in the synagogues in the same way. I, I think that would be one of the most fun things to go in to see is Priscilla. Sit with Priscilla and Aquila when Apollo shows up and starts talking like this. Like, who is this guy? This is what we talk about. This is what Paul did. I'm sure the people in the synagogue were like, this sounds familiar, not quite the same, but it sounds familiar. But I want to highlight something here. So it sounds like Apollo shows up, much like Paul, but is missing information. Look at how Priscilla and Aquila handle this. Priscilla and Aquila bring take him aside and speak with him. This seems like a very gentle way of conveying this truth. How did that conversation go? Apparently very well, because this man who was very learned, uh, an amazing orator, who was fervent in the spirit, responded very appropriately to this, which makes a lot of sense, because they basically filled in the last gaps in his understanding of what the truth was. This um, makes me think about the, the story of the, um, the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story? Resurrection has taken place, but that story hasn't really gotten out. These two disciples are walking and they're talking about what's going on. Jesus shows up. They don't recognize him. And it says that he opened up the, uh, the scriptures and taught them about the Messiah, why this had to happen. And it was when they sat down to eat and he broke bread, All of a sudden, they recognize him as Jesus. And then, zoop, 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 he's gone, as Jesus tended to do at that point. And you have this gentle explanation of these different things. This is what that reminds me of. So again, following in the pattern of Jesus, what's amazing is is this is not Paul. This is Priscilla and Aquila. So they do this for Apollos, and it says, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and were wrote the disciples and then welcomed him. So this is prob- there's probably a gap of time here. But he wants to go to Achaia. That's where Corinth is. He's like, I need to go to that place. Why? We don't have all that explanation. But it's interesting because he goes where Paul has left. Why? Most likely because the Spirit was leading him. What don't we have in this passage? We don't have a story of the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's just assumed. We don't have this great call upon Apollos to go somewhere else. It's assumed. It's just he's moving on. And it says, when he went, they sent letters, which meant that he had been there long enough to establish relationships so that the church there in Ephesus felt comfortable enough sending a letter ahead of time to say, hey, accept this guy in. He's the real deal. The, the big issue here, uh, let, me, let me finish this. I'll finish this and then we'll go, go to that. Um, in the middle of verse 27, when he arrived, he greatly helped those uh, who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was jesus the messiah was jesus his message was amplified i'm sure there's still repentance in there i'm still there sure there's still these conversations concerning judaism and these connections and things because that's what you would probably do in a synagogue but now the focus was the christ is jesus so now we've paul says his message fixed it's now correct in all those different regards the reason this passage is so amazing is it answers the question what happens when the apostles are gone? What happens when Paul is gone? What happens when there's no more of that first generation, if you want to put it that way? That first generation of the church. Will it end? Will it continue? What will happen? I feel as though this answers that question on multiple levels you have Priscilla and Aquila they carried on this concept this idea of discipleship they met with someone who was already learned and in a gentle way encouraged taught and then helped that man Apollos to continue what God was already doing in his heart and in his life but then Apollos goes where Paul has left and continues to minister Right? He didn't plant that church, but it says that he went and he greatly helped them. Right. So is this going to continue? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, it did. We, we know that because we're all here. Right. It did continue after the apostles. But that was always in question. Will this continue? And it did. Let's go to chapter 19. We'll go through this. We won't go as as slowly through this this part here. It says, and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, so now we pick up at this other part of the story. Paul passed through the inland country, then came to Ephesus. Oh, they're just kind of missing each other, right? Ships in the night. There were found some disciples. Now, this is interesting, because he's in Ephesus, but he's like in a different area, right? He's in sort of the outskirts, a different part of Ephesus, but he finds some disciples. So again, Key word here, more disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, we don't have the context of this. Was it in the midst of the conversation? Did he see them talking with someone else and then jumped in? We don't know. But it could have been he wanted some clarification. Did you, are you, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Because maybe their message was very close. Maybe this is very much like Apollos. Here's a message and says, What do you know? What, you, what don't you know? Let's let's talk about this. They said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So clearly not. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Boy, the influence of John. They're going all over the place finding all these different people who had been impacted by, by John. Now I, I, I keep saying that because, do you think that John the Baptizer really thought that his impact would go that far? They were, talk, we're talking decades after, and there are still people that have been inspired by what he has taught, this truth that he taught, who are still moving. Their lives had changed. and they're still sharing this message, this truth that John had. Yes, it was not the entirety of the gospel because they didn't have that last chapter, right? That last part, that thing that made all those things connect, but isn't that amazing? And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, which I feel like is a little, nice little wink. 12 men. Pretty good beginning. We like that number 12. A couple things about this. If you were to talk to a Jewish person in that first century and I don't know how you bring this up in common, normal conversation, but the way that Jews thought of the world, people in the world, there were generally four categories of people. Okay? Number one, Jews. Okay? So those who were ethnically Jewish, brought up in a Jewish household, understood Jewish things, culturally Jewish, heard the law, the whole shebang. Okay? Jewish people. Second group of people, half-Jews. That sounds weird to say, but it's true. The Samaritans, where they had a heritage, but they weren't completely Jewish, but they still had some understanding. Probably a lot of arguments. We know from stories they hate each other. Whatever. But that's another category of people. Okay, Third category of people. Gentiles who were God-fearing. We've interacted with them in Acts. Right? Remember, uh, the centurion, there always centurions, but centurion who invited Paul into, or I'm sorry, Peter into his house, and that whole thing. God-fearing, but not proselytes. They feared Yahweh. They, they worshipped Yahweh, but they weren't fully in as proselytes. They weren't considered Jews. Okay? And then you've got a fourth category, which is pretty much everyone else in the world. Pagan, non-Jews. That's a big category. Okay? What you see in Acts, every single one of those groups receives the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way, and so testifies that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for every person, every kind of person, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you grew up knowing things about the Old Testament. Doesn't matter if you, you grew up learning things about the Old Testament, but you want to argue about it. Doesn't matter. The gospel's for everybody. And I say that because... You don't have this miraculous thing taking place with Apollos. He falls in the very first category. But it seems like there's a continuation of the gospel. So what is God doing? God is showing that there's a continuity between this Old Testament faith, which is actually what John's preaching at baptism was highlighting. This is real and it's important. And you need God. You can't just rely on your heritage. You have to engage with the understanding that you need God to save you. Repentance, that's John's message but you have these different events where the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And that's probably why Paul asked, Hey, the Holy Spirit come upon you? Nope. So there's an answer to that. So this was that. These were people who had been impacted in this way. So these are the four different categories. All of them received the Holy Spirit. This is a gospel for everyone. It's pretty cool. I think it's neat. Just a few things. I know we've kind of gone through these different stories and I hope that by talking about some of the details in these stories, we'll be able to remember those because we always remember things better through stories. But a few things about discipleship. Okay, So these feel random, they're not. They're just part of all these different stories. We're just encapsulating these, these few things. Number one, uh, we're not going to go to all these passages but uh, maybe, maybe we'll talk about a couple of them. Discipleship is assumed. That's our first one. Discipleship is an assumed aspect of the true gospel of Jesus. Okay, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the Great Commission. Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to go into all the nations and do what? Yes, make disciples of all nations, preaching the gospel, right? So there's there's this idea that that is actually the fulfillment of that thing. The actual fulfillment of the mission of Jesus is making disciples. If you need some water, you can get some water. If you need like an additional context to that, Matthew 13, we have the parable of the sower and the seeds. It goes out, it's not our responsibility to make those seeds grow, it is the Lord's, and he will do it, all right? This so, one. Discipleship is about consistency. There's no substitute for time and consistency in discipleship. Philippians chapter 4. We'll turn to that one. Philippians 4. Look at verse 2. I entreat uh, Iodia and I entreat uh, Syntyche, which is the poor guy, Syntyche, uh, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, which actually may have been a name, but he calls him true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul is writing this and he's just saying, hey, we, we, let's, let's, try to, let's try to patch up some of these relationships. All right, This is important. Look at verse four. So what we have here is, I think this is what you do to do that. This is what you do to kind of shore up your discipleship. Mutual discipleship. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice so he says it twice. That's number one and number two. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything but with everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. Verse seven. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts in your minds, in Christ Jesus. I'd like to say that there's something different to do. There's not. These are all the same things that are talked about all the time. Care for each other, be reasonable with each other, right, don't be anxious. I think sometimes we go look for something. What's the new book? What's the new book that's gonna help us like do this stuff better? There's not. There's not, there's not. It's the same old stuff. They're just tricking you into buying a new book. You already got a book that talks about all this stuff. Just read this one. Start, at least start with this one. Then read that. That might be helpful, but start with this one. This has these things. There's no way to shortcut any of these things. There's no quick way to do it. You can't. You ever made a stew? Don't rush that. Let that thing simmer. We need more simmer. All right? More simmer. Uh, and in light of this as well, the, this third idea, discipleship like discipling someone else, you're discipling, they're a disciple of Jesus. They're not your disciple. They're not yours. You don't get to see what happens in their lives. You get to walk alongside them. Romans 14, 14. I love this verse for this reason. If you have big opinions about other people's lives and about what they're supposed to do, just remember this passage, all right? Romans 14, 14, oh, I'll start 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 14, I know that I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks that it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. There are these things where we Tell someone else, you need to do it this way. But it's that interaction that we have with the other. Do we say, you know what? Hey, brother, you do what you're doing. As long as we're not overstepping and actually walking off of that narrow path, these little things need to drop away, right? It doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't matter. Some of these little things don't matter, okay? They're not your disciple, other people, they're, they're the Lord's disciple. That is the Lord's servant. Right? You don't get to tell them what to do and all these minute things. If someone is telling you what to eat and what to wear, what shoes to buy, you might be in a cult. So, don't do that. But also, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that there are good works that the Lord has prepared for us to do. And so why would you get in the way with, of that? Why would you stop someone from doing what God has called them to do? We are called to come alongside, we're called to encourage, we're called to instruct, to correct, but not to re-disciple someone as our disciple. Discipleship, this is the next one here. Discipleship is about real stakes, okay? Apollos was ministered to by Priscilla and Aquila, not by Paul but could they have discipled Apollos properly without Paul? We don't know. I mean, they seemed pretty awesome when he found him, but it's the fact that it's, there were real stakes placed on Priscilla and Aquila. Hey, you guys stay here in Ephesus. I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. You keep doing what we're doing. Paul deposited his people around to have that influence. I heard someone speak one time and I would would give credit, but I actually can't remember who it was that said it. Greg, you might remember, because we were talking about this at one point. But there it was at a men's conference, it was talking about men having real stake in ministry. It was saying that we need to, as, as people who are discipling other people, and in that context it was men, then you'd be given real stakes. We're not going to say, hey, you want to come serve the Lord? Hold a basket at the end of the aisle. Is that it? That's all God has for me? Hold a basket. And in the context, what he's saying was when you disciple someone, they might actually be better than you. They might actually rise above your station. You might disciple someone that they will overshadow you so quickly, make your head spin, and that's okay. It says in discipleship, we need to be raising up stallions, not mules. You don't hold people back to say, no, you need to keep doing it this way. You need to stay under my teaching and you need to do it my way. No, sometimes they're going to be a stallion. They're going to run off. They're actually going to do more things than you. Mules, yeah, mules can't procreate. Mules are useful for getting work done until they die. That's not what we need in ministry. So take that and expand that to just general discipleship. Someone that you are talking with that you are coming alongside might rise above you and above your station and maybe be more talented than you, and that is okay They don't need to stay under your tutelage. 2 Timothy 2 has something to say about that. Verses 1 through 10. You can look at it later. Discipleship does not lead to division. I feel like I need to bring that up because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul actually addresses Apollos and says, Hey, so I've heard in Corinth that some of you are saying, Oh, I'm of Paul. I was here originally when Paul was here, so. I feel like uh, maybe I'm a better disciple than you. people, well, psh, well, I learned from Apollos, and we know that he's super awesome, so maybe I'm better than you. So people say, well, psh, I learned from, from Peter, so I'm better than all of you. So we say, well, it's very interesting. You all learned from just humans. I learned from Jesus. So, so you have all these divisions. It's like that's not the point of discipleship either does not cause divisions, but instead it should allow us to align more appropriately. True discipleship points to Jesus and the expanding of the kingdom, not our kingdom. That needs to be stated as well, but I do say it's not the job of pastors. It's not the job of elders. It's the job of everyone. The Lord is going to bring people into your path, into your way that I would not be able to speak with in the same way the Lord has brought them to you that is your responsibility and hopefully that shakes you up a little bit to be like Ooh, I better pay attention yes you should you should read you should pay attention because the Lord is calling you to do things the Lord is calling you to be at work and so you need to make sure that you are following what God has called you to do Heavenly Father we thank you for the example of Lord not just Paul Priscilla and Aquila, and Apollos, Lord, and so many others that Paul lists out. There are people that Paul knows who are stepping up, and they're doing what he is calling to do. And you you can tell from how he writes his letters that he wants to be with them. He wants to see what the Lord is doing. He is proud of them in the most non-sinful way, but just excited at what God was doing. Lord, I pray that for refuge. I pray that for this city and county Lord I pray that you would raise up people Lord who not like some of these others are building their own kingdoms but they instead are looking towards your kingdom Lord I pray there would be less division between churches between ministries between leaders and instead we would be looking to Jesus the perfecter the finisher of our faith the one who has called us Lord that we would want to point to him that we would want him his kingdom to be lifted up, to be highlighted, to be made famous. Lord, we pray that you would use us to glorify you, not ourselves, not a denomination, not a church, not a group. Lord, I pray that you would use us, Lord, to encourage one another, that we would come along each other, uh, to each other's side, Lord, to be able to minister, to encourage, Lord, to gently correct, to gently inform, and at the same time, Lord, to greatly encourage each other, that we would sharpen each other, that we would be able to become better followers of you because we have a brother or a sister who will link arms with us and help pick us up when we get weak, that we would in turn do the same. Lord, I pray that we would be those who minister to one another in light of the kingdom. Lord, that you are at work. Lord, that you are doing something bigger than us. You're doing something bigger than refuge. You're doing something bigger than just what we can do But, Lord, Lord, I pray that you would make us a part of it. Lord, I pray that we would submit more and more to your leading. Lord, that we would fulfill this promise in Ephesians chapter 2. Lord, to do these good works that were prepared for us to do. Lord Jesus, make us better disciples of your Son. I pray this in Jesus' name.